This is Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33. It says, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? He's talking to his disciples here in this moment. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown in hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. So it's strange, right? A lot of, a lot of stories that just kind of run together. And this is sort of the thing about how the Gospels came into being. So what we have is we have four stories that tell about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A lot of people try to figure out which book came first or how the different books used each other or the, used the, the same sources. So what most people will say is because Mark is the smallest, the way that it retells story is very terse. It's to the point. It doesn't go into a lot of overdevelopment of what's going on. They would say that Mark probably came first. And then Matthew and Luke, because they share a lot of the same stories, they probably borrowed from, from Mark. But the weird part is Matthew and Luke oftentimes agree together against Mark. So some scholars that earn a lot of money have hypothesized, big word, that there must be this other source out there somewhere which they have dubbed Q, which is short for the German word quell, which means source. So they are hypothesizing that there's this other source book out here somewhere that Matthew and Luke are using. Now, I can see the, the eyes glazing over already as we're talking about source criticism in the Gospels, guys. Pat yourselves on the back. This is real deal, big time stuff here. Great. Nice work. What's behind all of this is this idea that there are a bunch of stories that have circulated for a long period of time about Jesus. And the authors of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they took all these stories and they arranged them in a particular way 
for a particular group of people to prove a particular point to be true about Jesus. And what we see here in this section of Mark is him taking stories that have appeared in other places in the Gospels and linking them together for some strange reason. I want to read you some stuff from some smart people. This is N.T. Wright, one of our favorites that we go to from time to time here. He says, this is the one part of Mark's gospel where it seems to me very likely that Mark has collected together and edited sayings from completely different contexts. He's taking these stories about um, John saying, we didn't want this, this person to be casting out demons in your name, or these stories about if anyone gives you a cup of water, they are to be blessed, or if anyone leads anyone astray, they are to put a millstone around their neck and to jump into the sea. All these different stories that come from different places, Mark is placing them together. R.T. France says something similar. This section of the gospel looks more like a collection of Jesus's teaching, which Mark wanted to include and has put in for convenience here after the second passion prediction. So Jesus shows up and says, hey guys, I'm going to die, but in three days I'm going to rise again. And for R.T. France, he says that Mark has linked all of these teachings together for some odd reason in this place. Larry Hurtado says something similar, and we're done with scholars for a bit. Careful study of the parallels to these sayings in other synoptic gospels in Matthew and in Luke. They appear in different places, and what Mark is doing is he's bringing them together. It says that those other instances show that they appear, these stories appear in various contexts and in varying forms, which indicates that Mark has gathered the sayings into a block of material of his own arrangement. Now stick with me. This is telling us something. Mark sees these stories as important, yes, but he's also bringing them together in this place for a specific purpose. So when we think about the architecture of a story, how Mark is telling this overarching gospel presentation about who Jesus is, about the crazy things that he was teaching, about the crazy things that he was doing, and eventually leading to his death and resurrection, how Mark is is phrasing those things and putting them together, we can see in the text that we're looking at this evening from Mark 9.33 through Mark 9.50, an inclusio, everyone say inclusio. It's a literary device that kind of begins something and ends something, and then it links the in-between parts together. It's like bookends almost. And what happens in the beginning of this passage that we looked at was the disciples on the road, they were arguing about who was the best. They were at odds with one another. They were jockeying for position as if to say like, oh no, Jesus loves me more than he loves you. Oh, no, 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 Jesus loves me more than he loves you. This is great. This is why I really appreciate the Apostle John because as he was writing his own gospel, he dubbed himself the one whom Jesus loved. Pretty brilliant, right? He also sneaks in at the end a foot race between he and Peter running to the tomb and John, the one whom Jesus loved, outruns Peter to get to the, to the tomb. Like, he's just kind of sticking it to his friends here throughout his gospel. But we see um, in this particular story, the disciples are arguing one against the other about who Jesus loves more and who's going to be sitting at his right hand and who's going to have a seat of authority and who's going to be entrusted with more work. And at the end of this, this set of texts, Jesus says, be at peace with one another. Don't let the salt in you go saltless. Don't lose, your, uh, don't lose your fervor and your passion. Don't lose that bit about you that's going to demonstrate to the world something true about me. And more than that, stop fighting. 
be at peace with one another. So what Mark's doing is he's taking all these stories and lumping them together to prove something to be true or to get to a specific point. Okay, so that's the inclusio in this story. But we also see that there's a structural repetition in Mark's storytelling. The way that he goes about telling these stories about Jesus, we see time and time again how he's linking things together. Now, in this section that we've been looking at, Mark 8 through 10, three times Jesus says, I'm going to die. Three times he predicts what is about to happen in his life as he is heading towards Jerusalem to this climactic moment where he will stand trial and where he will be sacrificed. And in each of those three instances, what we see is the disciples saying, no way, no how, that's no good, you're wrong, Jesus. And Jesus using that as a moment to teach or to instruct his disciples on what is actually happening. So we see this passion prediction, which basically just means Jesus says, hey, this is where we're headed. We've had a lot of fun together. We've done a lot of miracles. We've taught some people. We've done some really good things, but I'm going to die. But don't worry, because in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And as soon as he announces that, the disciples demonstrate themselves to be people that just don't get it. Time and time again, it's almost like Mark is just kind of sticking it to them. They do not understand what Jesus is getting at, and Jesus uses that as an example to teach. So I told you the story in uh, the latter half of, of Mark 8, where Jesus says, after Peter makes this big declaration, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. Yeah, that's right, Peter, but I'm, I'm going to die. And Peter kind of loses his mind. Peter rebukes Jesus. It says he takes him aside and like, Come on now. It's like the parent in the Walmart, you know, when the kid's going crazy and we just kind of take them off to the side. Come on, come on now, you know, got to rebuke the child. Abe is at a really great age. Um, he's just a little bit over two. And we've learned that for two-year-olds, they go into this thing called sleep regression. I guess that's a thing where they don't like to go to bed anymore. So what Abe does is he stands defiantly in his crib and says, quote, Get back here right now, mommy, right now. You get back here, cover me up right now. He's lost it, guys. He's lost his, his mind. And it's all Kate and I can do not to go upstairs and in love, I mean, in Christian love, to, to rebuke the satanic forces in our son right now that are at war for his spirit. Um, but Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him, and that allows Jesus to launch into this teaching about what discipleship looks like. It's not just a corrective moment where he's saying, no, you guys don't quite get it. He says, if anyone wants to follow me, they must deny themselves. They must pick up their cross and go where I'm leading them to go. There's a cost associated with this discipleship. And Jesus, in these three chapters in the middle of the book of Mark, he's trying to get this across. Folks, you don't understand what I'm saying, but hear me. There's a cost to this. If you want to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross. You must deny yourself. You must follow me. In our passage, we see the same thing where right before we launched into uh, 9 verse 33 where the disciples are arguing, Jesus has predicted that he is going to die and rise from the dead yet again. And in the, in the text, it says the disciples, they just did not understand what he was saying. 
So what some people have posited is that Mark 9, 33 through 50, all of that weird stuff that doesn't really seem to go together, Mark has brought it all intentionally into this place to give us more instructions on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's Mark's corrective teaching on what it really looks like to follow Jesus with passion. One scholar says in each of the teachings that we see here is a call to sacrifice one's self-interest and to reverse the typically worldly values. Hear me. Following Jesus will cost you something. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is not this light decision that we make and it doesn't always prove itself to be easy. At times, the road is very demanding. At times, the road is very difficult. And you can hear throughout the Gospel of Mark these whispers. If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. But you also hear the whispers from Jesus. I will be with you in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of uh, the things that seem to be going against what the world is telling you, whether it's money or sex or uh, relationships or all these different things that you're trying to go after, there's a subtlety to what Jesus is saying here. It's about self-denial. It's about following Jesus. It's about seeking the greater good. So in, in these uh, few verses that we looked at, there's four different models that I would argue Mark is trying to get across to his readers about what true discipleship is. True discipleship models servanthood, okay? And we'll kind of unpack these as we go. True discipleship demonstrates inclusivity. That's a word that we don't usually think about within the church because the church oftentimes has built these huge walls where we say, you, you're out, because of this, that, and the other thing. But here in the Gospel of Mark and, and throughout, we see Jesus inviting the weird ones in, the ones that don't seem to have a place in society. He says, no, you come follow me. To the tax collector who had stabbed all his friends in the back, he says, follow me. To the, to the women caught in, in adultery or to all these people that the society has pushed off to the side, the lepers and, and the marginalized and the oppressed, Jesus says, follow me. And we see that here in these stories as well, where true discipleship, it demonstrates inclusivity, where we're welcoming people into the fold. True discipleship also understands judgment. That's a weird verb there, understands judgment, but we see that there's a couple of uh, verses within this section where judgment is on the tip of Mark's tongue. It's the things that, that will certainly come to pass if you were to give a cup of water to one who follows Jesus, or if you were to lead those astray, those little ones who believe if you, if you were to leave them astray, or if you don't take care of the eye that causes you to sin, or the hand that causes you to sin, or the foot that causes you to sin. We see that there's this emphasis on judgment, and that's not something that we necessarily like to talk about within the church construct, but here we see it in this, in this text. And we also see true discipleship as salt-like and peaceable. That's a terrible way to frame that because it doesn't really translate, but we see Mark saying, um, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to be demonstrating the salt. Matthew says we are the salt of the earth. We are to demonstrate this, this inherent goodness and this grace and this mercy to others around us, and we should be at peace with one another. 
So I want to unpack these four things as we go. Um, So true discipleship models servanthood. And we can see in this very first framing story that Doug walked us through two and a half or three months ago, where we see the disciples arguing about who is the greatest among them. We see them trying to figure out who is Jesus' favorite almost, and the response that Jesus gives is anyone who wants to be first must be servant of all. He continues by saying, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. This was interesting because the first time we were going through this passage, it was right around the time when the Syrian refugee crisis was like at its, at its apex. It's still a huge mess over there, and there's still families and people that are being um, displaced, and it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy and it's a problem, but it was so ironic that we came to this text and we started thinking about whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Meanwhile, our Facebook feeds are littered with people that kind of want to shore up the borders and make sure that there's no refugees, that we're not taking them in, that our safety is number one, and at the heart of that is sort of the same kind of teaching where it's about me. Am I the best? Am I better than this person? Does Jesus love me more? Does Jesus love love me? Does Jesus want to use me in a way that is distinct from everyone else? Does Jesus think that I'm really great and this person's really terrible? Whoever welcomes one of these little children. At the time, these children were not important players on the scene. In first century Jewish culture, they were just kind of there, but Jesus is, is being radical in the sense of taking this kid, setting him on his lap and saying, right here, if you, can, if you can meet the needs of this child, if you can welcome this child, you're welcoming me. And not only that, you're not just welcoming me, you're welcoming my dad who sent me here. The creator of all of this stuff will be pleased in you when you set your own agenda to the back burner. When you realize that it's not about you and your status and your position and your authority, and when you realize it's about the things that go beyond you and you figure out that it's about the poor and the broken and the marginalized and the oppressed that the church historically has not necessarily brought into the fold because they don't look like us, because they don't think like us, because they don't act like us. And sometimes we can draw these really big comparisons where it's about the homeless folks or it's about the drug addicts or it's about this, but there's also something to be said where... There's also walls that are built up against folks that don't share our theological positions. Folks that don't um, share all of our ethical codes. And we start to stiff arm them and we start to put them off to the side and we hear Jesus in the back of our hearts saying, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. N.T. Wright says, if we're thinking that by following Jesus we will enhance our own prestige, our sense of self-worth, or even our bank balance, then we're very unlikely to hear what God is actually saying. This story is set where the disciples, they do not understand what Jesus is saying. And it's because their priorities are so jacked up. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, but take heart, I will rise again. And then in the next vignette, we see them arguing about who's the best, who's the most important. And I can't help but wonder how far away we are from that when we sit here collectively and we we think about these things and this, this call to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, to follow Jesus. But as soon as we leave this place, how quickly... How quickly it becomes about us again. 
Jesus says, anyone who receives even this child, this figure who kind of stands as a symbol for all of the things that the world has shoved off to the side that says, it's not important, it won't help you get the job, it won't help you get into grad school, it won't help you get married, it won't help you get your bank account to be secure, it won't help you, so don't waste your time with that. Jesus is saying, actually, that's the stuff that you should be devoting your time to because... The last will be first. And whoever wants to be great must be the servant of all. So Jesus is completely turning this teaching on its head. True discipleship is about serving. And I don't know what that looks like for you guys. I don't know who the people are that are kind of outside of the walls that you might be, the Spirit might be asking you to start to bring them in. I don't know if this is something where you are so driven by your agendas and your goals and your five-year, 10-year plan where Jesus might be saying to you, there's something bigger at work. I don't know what we need to take away corporately from this teaching about whoever wants to be Great, or whoever wants to be first must be last, or whoever wants to be whatever needs to be the servant of all. I don't know where we are in that collectively, but I would hope that somewhere you can begin the self-reflection process of what is this teaching of discipleship calling me into. True discipleship also demonstrates inclusivity. There's this story where John, who is named in this, in this text, it says, Jesus, there were these people out there and they were trying to cast out demons in your name, but we said, no, you can't do that because they're not one of us. And we see these stories and they're kind of linked together where it's about status and it's about privilege and it's about uh, who's better than other people. And the disciples are kind of put up these walls saying, you can't do that because you're not part of the 12. You're not part of the cool group. You're not part of the people that Jesus has devoted a lot of his time to. So that person is wrong for doing the work of Jesus. Think about it here for a second. These people are outside casting out demons and this has to be like salt in the wound because the disciples had been sent out to cast out demons and they couldn't do it. And now they find out that there's these other rogue people that are casting out demons in Jesus' name. And the walls begin to go up. The voices begin to start chirping. Well, if they can do it, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with that? They must be wrong. We need to kick them out because they, they can't be doing that. We see stuff like this throughout scripture, like in Acts 19, where it says some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Now, this story is different because um, every inclination from uh, the book of Mark would seem that it was more positive, but here, this is not a good story where people are using the name of Jesus. It says, they would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out, son... Uh, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, they were the ones that were doing this. And now check this out. This is what happens. One day, the evil spirit answered them saying, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know about, but who are you? So these people that were trying to cast out demons by invoking the name of Jesus, the, the demon-possessed person says, wait a second, what, what's going on here? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's strange, right? Can we all just be in agreement there that 
an odd text. You don't see the, the children acting this out on the stage uh, around Christmas time. It's just a, it's a strange story here. But what we see is people were beginning to understand who Jesus was and they were starting to use his name to try to levy the power that he has. And the disciples were seeing this and we don't know if it worked out or if it was one of these kind of act sort of scenarios where it wasn't really helpful. But it says that they told him to stop because he was not one of us, and Jesus responds by saying, whoever is not against us is for us. I want to take this, and I want to kind of sidestep a little bit into an area that might be reading in a bit, okay? Just want us to be aware of that. I can't not think of the church with stuff like this. When people begin to say, oh, no, 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 they're not one of us, so they must not be correct in how they're doing this. They, they, no, 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 they don't think what we think, so they must not be, they're not doing real ministry like we are. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it's, they, see, they've got it all jacked up, and now they start to make enemies out of friends, allies, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we collectively of the church have sort of pushed them out to say, no, you're not one of us. I think at times that we can also do this just with people that need to know Jesus, and again, it's because they look different, they act different, they think different, and we forget that where we have been on the process. I'm 34 years old, and I've been following Jesus for a long time, and sometimes I forget the bumps and the bruises and the wrestling and the thoughts and just the moments where it was, seemed like it was all falling apart. And sometimes in conversations with people, I forget that process, and I start to say, oh, no, no, you're not one of us. True discipleship, it demonstrates inclusivity where it's inviting people in to the story, and it's inviting people that are super unlikely participants into the story. Now think just where you're sitting. Think about who the people are in your life that you have already written off, that you have already said, mm. I don't think Jesus is going to do a work there. That's a stretch. Like you've just kind of put them into that box. True discipleship wants us to move beyond that, to trust that Jesus can move in huge ways and to allow people in to experience the goodness and grace of Christ. In this story, it continues, and Jesus says, don't stop this person for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Once these people get into the game, so to speak, they'll start to understand and they'll start to see who Jesus is and trust the work, trust the spirit, trust that something is happening in their lives. True discipleship also understands judgment. And we're gonna get into a bunch of stuff that I can't really develop um, that's, that's in there and that's difficult. But here we see these, these stories. There's basically three different vignettes where um, Jesus is saying, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name will certainly not lose their reward. It's unclear as to what this actually means. It's unclear if this is... Um, like an eternal life just for giving a cup of water to someone. It's unclear what this looks like, but Jesus seems to be opening up the door for unlikely people to be in the fold. And I want to even say one step farther, it might be people that we would have already taken out. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name will certainly not lose 
their reward. On the complete opposite side of the spectrum, he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, these little ones here is not just talking about children, but he's using this as a term to refer to the people that believe in him. If anyone causes one of these believers of mine to stumble or causes them to sin or causes them to, gosh, this sounds tragic, but causes them to doubt in an unhealthy way. Not to begin to ask questions and to pursue them, but, but to take them out of the game. If anyone is trying to get them to move from point A to point out of the game, it would be better for them to take a millstone. And the Greek here is it's a millstone that a donkey would use to push around. This is not just like a hand mill. This is like a big freaking stone. It'd be better for that person to take that stone and just to fall into the ocean and be done with because that's how serious it is when you start to take these these believers, and then force them out of the picture. This idea of judgment, where Jesus starts to unravel people's perspectives by saying, anybody who gives you a cup of water, that's my people. But anybody who starts to undo what I'm doing, that's not a great place to be. And then he gets super personal with his disciples by saying, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, get it out. It's better for you to be maimed in whatever way, down one hand, down one foot, down one eye, and to enter life than to have all of your working parts and to go straight to hell. Now, the word that's here for hell is Gehenna, and for an ancient audience, they would have completely understood what was going on, and Jesus is creating this word picture where Gehenna, uh, the Valley of Hinnom, it's, it's over there. It's where people used to sacrifice their babies. It's, it's where this, this fire was always simmering, where people used to burn their trash. It's, it's right out there on the southwest side of, of Jerusalem. It's like we're on the hill, and down there in the corner, it's like that's where, that's where all the bad stuff happens. And it'd be better for you to have one less of your parts to go into heaven than to be anywhere near that seems to be the metaphor of choice where Jesus is saying that is bad. The place where some of you might be heading is bad. And it's better for you to take care of your issues right now so that you can avoid being there. Now, Jesus says a lot of things about um, eternal life, and he says a lot of things about what it looks like to follow him. And I don't want to reduce this just to take care of your sin problem or else, because we'll just revert back into legalism very, 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 very quickly. But there does seem to be a seriousness with which Jesus is saying, consider where you are. Think about the things that are taking you away from Jesus and begin to walk down the difficult road of taking care of those things. True discipleship, it understands that there's this judgment aspect to this. Discipleship is difficult and it demands sacrifice. As many today write and speak as if the only purpose in following Jesus were to find complete personal fulfillment and satisfaction, to follow a way or path of personal spirituality which will meet our felt needs. And I think that that's the way oftentimes the church has talked about Jesus. What can you get out of it? And in the text, there seems to be a, a bit more here. N.T. Wright says, that is hardly the point. There's a war going on and battle lines are being drawn and you need to figure out where you're standing. If the discipleship that we have is one that is true and passionate and devoted, or if the discipleship that we are acting out is fleeting, 
if it's rooted in our own selfish desires, if it's just for our benefit, if anyone outside of our sphere of influence could even see a difference because of what Jesus is doing in our lives. Last point, true discipleship is salt-like or it's, it's peaceable. Now, this is a, a weird set of text. So um, for Jesus here, he seems to be indicating that our lives will look different if we're following him with everything that we have. Our lives will look different and people will be able to see something that is true about us. I wanna read this text here from Mark uh, chapter nine just so I can get it right for us. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He's kind of tapping into an ancient uh, understanding of, of the preservative aspects of, of salt. But here he's saying that if it is not performing its function, it's completely and utterly worthless. True discipleship understands the cost. True discipleship understands that it's asking us to move in a direction that we might not be moving on our own. And true discipleship is wanting to encourage us to demonstrate the commitment and the passion that we have to Jesus and the things that we have received from Jesus in being forgiven, understanding grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, demonstrating a peaceableness amongst people, not just within this room, but wherever we might go. Here's the big question tonight. When we think about the stories that Mark is piecing together, does our life demonstrate a similar lack of understanding that the disciples demonstrated time and time again, where Jesus says, hey, this is, this is what's going on, and it just, they just don't get it. They don't put it together. They don't understand what's happening. They don't get that when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to count the cost. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to pick up your cross and follow me in whatever way that looks like for you. Is that something that's true about us? Are we collectively as a people denying ourselves, following Jesus, picking up our cross and, and, and trying to mirror his life? Are we known by our inclusivity or are we known by the ways that we have stiff-armed the people in our lives? Are we known by our saltiness and the way that we are at peace with one another? Or are we known by our strife and our discord and our division and our dissension and all of the things that come in between us? Are we, as followers of Jesus, demonstrating his goodness, his grace, his His is peace, or is it just about us? Are we still trying to jockey for positions to show God how good we are? Or are we allowing ourselves to trust the goodness that he bestows upon us? I hope that tonight, as we begin to reflect on 
discipleship that we can start to ask those tough questions about ourselves to figure out where we are at this moment. If it's about me or if it's about something that's bigger than me, if, it's, if our lives are about justice or if our lives are just participating in injustice, if it's about forgiveness and grace and mercy or if we still haven't been able to forgive the people that have hurt us and we've lived with an ax to grind. I hope that as we continue to think through what true discipleship looks like, that we can be inspired and that we can be encouraged and that we can hear that whisper from Jesus, yeah, it's gonna be hard, but I'm with you. My hope tonight is that we begin to take steps towards true discipleship. And wherever you are, I hope that you can feel the, the hand on the small of the back and moving you towards a different place, a better place, a more hopeful place.